Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's peanut butter cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, electronic dance music, and heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, ragtime, Latin music, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our brand new Substack newsletter and website at LetItRollPodcast.com. We've got archives of every episode sorted by genre, era, guest, co-host, and miniseries. It's also a great way to support the show if you can afford it. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com. Today, Nate welcomes back Ned Sublet to kick off a new Latin Roll miniseries based on Ned's classic book, Cuba and Its Music, From the First Drums to the Mambo. Email us at letitrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today Ned Sublet returns to discuss his book, Cuba and Its Music, From the First Drums to the Mambo. Ned, welcome back. Hey, it's great to be back. So I'm really excited to talk to you about this book, and we're only going to talk about a little bit at the front because this thing is a mammoth undertaking. Um, One of my listeners, this is the first book that that was recommended to me by a listener. I knew Jack about uh, Cuban music. Going into this, I thought I knew all about the history of American music and realized, whoa, there's at least a third, if not a half of the story that I don't understand at all. And this book helped me understand that enormously. So first off, thank you, thank you, thank you. Well, thank Um, you. I'm delighted that the book has been of use to people. 
And I keep hearing, 20 years after its publication almost, I keep hearing from people who have found it, and it seems to be helping. I'm delighted because I really wrote the book to answer my own questions. I really didn't think anyone would ever read it. I was just, there were these things I wanted to understand myself about the course that music took. And the book was the answer to those questions. Well, yeah, thank you so much. It, it definitely, I mean, obviously can't answer all the questions, but as you call it, Cuba is the elephant in the living room of American music. What did you mean by that? I mean, you know, I can remember back, I'm, I'm an old guy, I was born in 51, so I remember back before the Cuban Revolution when uh, Cuban music was really omnipresent one way or another in the music of the United States in a kind of a visible way that uh, after the revolution, it fell into a black hole and people forgot all about it. But Cuba was always present and uh, in all kinds of ways. And going back to the earliest days, which is, of course, what I track in the book, is just how far back this goes, the influence of Havana, the, the first great music capital of the hemisphere, on the developing music of North America. So there's a there's something you say in the preface of the book that I should have mentioned already. And you say that music, far from being a universal language, is made in the spaces created by societies and empire. And we have to know what those societies and empires were if we want to understand this music. And that's been the involuntary subtext of this whole series. When I decided to start doing this with Ed Ward, I thought it would be a much simpler thing, and I could talk about music to take my mind off of current events. <laughs> and unfortunately, <laughs> <laughs> all I'm doing is immersing myself in in current events and current and the current events of the past that we call history that got us here. So there's a lot of ugly history um, that comes with this story. We're talking about empire. We're talking about mass enslavement of human beings. We're talking about mass forced migrations of human beings. We're talking about mass voluntary migrations of human beings. We're talking about mass genocide of human beings. So a whole lot of ugly stuff, but I think you can boil it down to as collision. And I think that's a term you use a lot. And that you say that the collision, what was it about Cuba that made it the collision, the biggest music and cultural collision in the history of the world? Well, first of all, at one time, uh, the Spanish laid claim to the entire hemisphere. They weren't in a position to enforce that claim, and they didn't uh, weren't able to make it for all that long uh, without a competition. But when the Spanish were running the show, Havana was the hub. Havana is uh, located at the uh, end of a narrow defensible channel. It's a marvelous deep water bay right at the Gulf, right at the place where the uh, loop current out of the Gulf of Mexico passes through the Straits of Florida to create the Gulf Stream, the most powerful current in the world's oceans, one branch of which goes pretty much directly back to Spain. So uh, Havana was the shipping hub of the uh, centuries-long operation that uh, ripped sugar and gold out of the bowels of Mexico and Peru, and uh, did I say sugar and gold? Silver and gold out of the that ripped that ripped silver and gold out of the bowels of the New World and sent it back to Europe, where it um, 
on occasion tripled the money supply of silver. Uh, so it was a vital hub of the operation. Uh, sailors and uh, other travelers from all parts of the Americas wound up in Havana for weeks and months at a time waiting to ship back to Spain. So as the Afro-Latin hemisphere came into being, Havana was the hub. Havana was the place where everything uh, creolized so to speak, where all the new developments that had happened, whether they be in Panama or Peru, would wind up uh, simmering, shall we say, in the taverns and the shipyards of Havana. This, in turn, created a situation in which, well, let's just say that Havana is 200 years older than New Orleans, right? At the... uh, the time the 13 colonies became independent, Havana was much bigger than any city in the uh, nascent United States. It was a great city when New York was a village. So Havana was the first great music capital of the hemisphere. And a lot of people crossed paths in Havana, but in particular, people from Spain and people from various parts of Africa. And I'm going to go ahead and introduce our first musical snippet. And when we come back, you can explain to people this non sequitur, because I'm about to introduce Al-Kantara by Al-Safi, Fakhri, and Shaheen from the Two Tenors and Kantara album. And when, I, when we come back after we hear this, you can explain why am I starting this with some Arabic music? Kantara by Al-Safi, Fakhri, and Shaheen from the Two Tenors and Kantara album. And uh, they're playing at Oud, is the lead instrument there, if I'm pronouncing that right. Mm-hmm. Ned, solve the mystery. Why am I starting this with Arabic music? Am I just doing the wrong show? For the same reason that I went back all the way uh, to the 7th century BC in starting Cuba and its music, which uh, on the face of it, it's pretty strange. If you're writing a book about Cuban music, why would you start it that far back? Because if you're writing a book for, uh, certainly for consumption in the United States, people don't really know what Spain was, and they don't know what Africa was, and you've got to explain it. Uh, you've got to give some sense of that. So, of course, Spain uh, was, as of 711, under the 711 AD, under the um, was was a uh, an Islamized country. It was uh, a Muslim. Uh, Iberia was Muslim. Uh, much of it for three centuries. Some of it for eight centuries. And this created uh, a new culture in Spain that had not existed in North Africa, in Sub-Saharan Africa, or in Baghdad. It created a an Iberian culture which was then exported to all parts of the Americas, and where it then um, 
to use that word collided again, collided with the music of the enslaved Africans who were brought from, again, various parts of Africa with various different musical traditions, some of which were themselves Islamized. Yeah, in the book you describe, um, you say this, you say when Europeans began bringing people from coastal Africa into Europe and later the New World, they initiated perhaps the greatest culture shock in the history of music. The music of Europe, which was by that time a complex product of an evolution that stretched from Mesopotamia, Egypt, India, Phoenicia, the Levant, Anatolia, Persia, Greece, through the Roman Empire, the Islamic Empire, and Europe in the Middle Ages and Renaissance, collided with the music that had been evolving mostly in isolation all that time in forest Africa. And we'll get to the music of forest Africa, but I want to talk a little more about the music of Spain and Northern Africa, which you've already established why they were so closely connected because there's this 800 year period where the uh, Spain is part of Islam, Arabs rule over the Iberian Peninsula or most of it, but a tiny corner in the, in the Northwest, the Galician, uh, part where my wife's family came from was basically of not not enough not worth enough to invade <laughs> and eventually That's basically the, yeah the, yeah the christians used that foothold to to reconquer the peninsula by 1492 a year that some of us may remember from school and imposed the spanish language over that tell us about the role of the spanish language in cuban music well, the role of the Spanish language in the hemispheric culture is something that we have to take into account because it was a standardized language. In 1492, precisely, Elio Antonio de Nebrija presented Queen Isabel with his, Spanish, his Castilian grammar. This was something that did not exist for vernacular European languages, with the exception of Occitan, which had previous of Southern France, which had previously had its own grammar. But uh, Latin was a structured language with a uh, with rules and a written literature. It was the language of science and communication. But uh, now the uh, the, the, the bureaucrats and diplomats and sailors and conquistadores could communicate in a language that they actually spoke, which was standardized throughout the uh, growing Spanish empire. So they had a language that was transferred with really remarkable uniformity, I think, all across uh, much of the hemisphere. You know, people in Colorado can understand people in Chile today because of that. And that certainly, uh, obviously, is fundamental to understanding what happened in Cuba. And it also, because Spanish is such an easy language to rhyme, it allowed the creation of these elaborate rhyming structures that we still hear today uh, in the corridors in Mexico, when they when they you know sing the songs to the drug dealers and everything, and this format that comes directly from Spain, right? Well, yeah, the I mean the the corrido in Mexico goes back to uh, to the medieval era. Uh, it's with these, as you said, these rhyming structures that were quite formulaic and conventional. The decima. My favorite example, the the Decima Espinela, uh, by invented by Vicente Espinela, uh, with its 
10 line structure uh, is cultivated through in all parts of the Americas and people who it was cultivated by people who couldn't necessarily read, but who could improvise orally, who had mastery of oral literature, who had, who had memorized great poetry orally and could follow the rhyme structures and argue with each other in verse in, in poetic competition as uh, something that goes back quite far in history and certainly was cultivated in the pre-Islamic Arabic era as well. There's one other thing you say about Spanish language, and this is from the perspective of North Americans, United Statesians. You say that anybody speaking Spanish is going to be the other from our perspective. And when they come to America and contribute to our culture, there's always an otherness when they sing their songs because they're in the other language. Anything you want to add to that? Well, it's still true uh, that... uh, the music that is in Spanish is uh, by much of um, United States media considered in some sense impenetrable or ununderstandable. Uh, we can make up whatever stories we like about it because we don't understand it. I'm afraid that's still the case. I do think we're at an interesting moment, however, because of as much bad stuff as is happening right now. There's we're at, a, at the mo- this revolutionary moment in technology where the language barrier is starting to come down um, vis-a-vis, you know, machine translation, stuff like that. I can, for example, I don't speak Haitian Creole very well, uh, but I can correspond in it uh, with the judicious and careful aid of Google Translate. Uh, we are able now, if I find a piece of news in Arabic or Japanese, I can get the gist of it uh, through automatic translation. And once we have that to the point where we can um, use it readily in conversation, it's going to be a very interesting world that was unimaginable in the uh, decades I grew up in. I'm curious to see what that will bring. Uh, Meanwhile, uh, people still make lame jokes about not being able to speak Spanish and mispronounce Spanish names. One thing that really gets my goat is when uh, radio announcers uh, mispronounce uh, Spanish names. It seems to me if you're an announcer, you ought to know how to pronounce, um, especially. And if you're in the United States, I think if you want to call yourself an educated person in the United States, you need to understand Spanish because it's not a foreign language. Uh, in the parts of the United States where I grew up, Spanish was spoken before, long before English was. Very true, very true. And I should apologize to all our listeners for my abysmal Spanish and basically all foreign language and a lot of English, uh, standard English pronunciation as well. And I want to play our next song. Actually, subject. you've been and doing is, good. You've been doing good, Nate. Well, well, thank you, Ned. Thank you. I've been working on it. I've been working on it. <clears throat> and, and this is our next song snippet. This is Ray Charles, Hit the Road, Jack. When we come back, oh. I'll ask Ned to explain the connection.
And that was Hit the Road Jack, a classic from the 1960s by Ray Charles. And I picked that for two reasons. One is it features a straight, a pretty straight version of the Spanish cadence, which is a chord yeah. progression that you hear in flamenco. But it also, I wanted to use it because, and this was one of the big revelations to me in this book, is there's something very different about North American African-American music, which if you have a better way to say that, please let me know. But there's something very different, two big differences really, between the music we're used to hearing from African-Americans and Afro-Cuban music. And I'm talking about swing and blue notes. And why is it that the Africans brought to North America developed such a different musical tradition than Cuban music, which is incredibly polyrhythmic, but doesn't swing and doesn't, it does have blue notes, but not emphasized in the same way. Yeah. I, yeah, I would argue that, and I make, uh, I spent a fair amount of uh, space in Cuban, it's music making this argument that a major difference in the music of the United States versus the rest of the hemisphere is the presence of Senegambians, the heavy presence of Senegambians as first populators in uh, the three major fountainheads of African American culture, the Chesapeake, Charleston slash Low Country, and to a smaller but still significant degree, the Gulf Coast. Uh, these uh, the Africans who were brought to these places, the peak of that uh, slaving happened just at the time when Senegambia was throwing large numbers of captives onto the market. And also the, the journey from that part of Africa was much shorter than from farther down, which meant more of the kidnapped human cargo arrived alive and was preferred by slave owners. Plus, of course, Senegambians brought uh, such knowledge as the cultivation of rice, which in the case of the Low Country was very important. Uh, and the music of Senegambia is a very, very different cultural and musical uh, region than, say, Congo. Far down to the south, Senegambia was Islamized. Um, Senegambia had uh, these uh, this melismatic. I would say one of the big differences uh, is the the presence of mel- melisma, multiple uh, notes on a single vowel in African American music, which we hear in Arabic music and we hear in the music of the Senegambia, and much less so in music of Congo, for example. Uh, now, this population was, I won't say no Senegambians were brought to Cuba, but large numbers were not, and they do not figure in a really visible way in Afro-Cuban culture. For one thing, the Spanish did not want them because they were Islamized, and they had the, uh, the Christian kings of Spain had spent uh, centuries driving uh, Muslims out of Iberia. Meanwhile, uh, Congo had been Catholicized as of 1491, that is the year before Columbus. So Congo were, were, uh, were Catholics, and uh, the Spanish wanted them. So this uh, made for a very different uh, demographic movement to the United States and Cuba. I wouldn't say that this is the only 
reason that the musics are different. There's obviously this is really a complex story with a lot of factors, but I think this is a really important structural part of the story. Absolutely. And it jobs with uh, things I've learned from studying my own Scots Irish heritage from people like David Fisher's Albion Seeds, where. Great the, book. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely essential to understand America, I believe. And, and, you know, in settling the new world and, you know, genociding the previous culture, basically a year zero approach, and new populations come in, that the dominant population in an area like the Dutch in New York or the Saxon Protestants in Boston or the um, Norman descendants of royalty in Virginia set the tone for a culture that continues. So even though the Senegalese in North America were later overwhelmed by populations coming from other parts of Africa, they still had that first mover advantage. And you can definitely hear that in our music and this relationship to um, Arabic music. And, it, you know, so much of the things I had learned about the history of blues and history of rock and roll were totally wrong. And, and you know, many of these things <laughs> have been true. episodes after episode on. But one of the big things that was totally wrong to me was the way that blues was so often portrayed as some sort of primordial ancient African music from the heart of the Congo, when it really appears like it was a modern music invented in the late 19th century with heavy influence from Arabia and India and much more, the Senegalese were much more part of the conversation that the Spanish were part of that had been interacting with everybody um, all around, you know. Well, I mean, the blues was an African-American invention and you can hear, you know, heavily the influence of Islamized Africa in it. You could, um, Bob Palmer argued, however, for the presence of Congo vocal dynamics in the blues, uh, which I think is pretty, I mean, Certainly Congo was part of it. But by the time the blues were invented, it had been a long time since Africans had come in uh, to the United States. Uh, it, the, uh, the importation from Africa was shut off in 1808, and we had a domestic slave raising industry so that uh, the people in Mississippi uh, were not, you know, they were not people from Africa working, uh, chopping cotton in the deep South. They were mostly trafficked down from, you know, Virginia or Maryland. So this was, this was something that had had a long time to cook and become American at the same time. Uh, there's that great book by Gerhard Kubik, Africa in the Blues, that maps musicological traits of, um, the blues onto regions of Africa where those same traits are found. And you find heavily in the uh, a heavy concentration inland, uh, just below the Sahara. There's a lot of there's a lot of that influence in there. Um, the I would also say that uh, the the uh, the difference between uh, the two the these two musics we don't have the blues in cuba right there's nothing like there's also a lot of other stuff we don't have for example we don't have the bible in cuba um in the same way we don't have the bible thumping preacher we don't have any we don't have bible stories in cuban lyrics because uh protestantism was uh forbidden there so there are other influences as well and let's take a quick break from, and hear from our sponsors. When we come back, we'll introduce Sub-Saharan Africa 
and what it brought to Cuba that is not so present in North America. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. And so another thing that I learned from this book that was probably obvious to everybody else, but hit me like a two by four between the eyes was the rhythmic complexity that um, goes on in Cuban music and the way it's Ooh. held together by the clave and, and where that came from, this idea of like your lecture on the influence of Latin music on Louis Louis. Like I kind of knew that I knew that um, you know Richie Valens' big hit was a direct influence on Louis Louis. I knew that Richard Berry had been listening to music from the Caribbean, you know, but I was thinking more Harry Belafonte. But the real and I didn't understand what the big deal was. I didn't understand the difference between the three chord blues sequence and the three chord Louis Louis sequence. Although I could play them both, but in a theoretical level, I didn't understand. What's so special about the sort of Louis Louis, these little rhythmic patterns that are looped endlessly? Yeah, well, uh, Louis Louis was a uh, direct rewrite uh, 
of the El Loco Cha-Cha, as it was called in English uh, by René Touzet, uh, the number one uh, Cuban band leader in L.A. in the 50s. And it was in Spanish, it was called Amarne Loco, and it was composed by Rosendo Ruiz Hijo, uh, who was at the time the biggest hit composer of cha-cha-chas, having written, you know, Rico Vacilon and others. So it was a, he was a hot composer of the day. My basic r- recipe for early rock and roll, uh, my basic reductionist quick and dirty leaves a lot out recipe is boogie woogie meets cha-cha-cha. And the if you listen to the El Loco Cha-Cha, of course, the basic uh, lick is bum-bum-bum, bum-bum-bum-bum-bum. Pum, pum. Um, the melody of the tune is, is irrelevant. Richard Berry then went on and wrote a whole song on top of that. Uh, you can also listen to um, uh, any number of examples because, as I say, in the 50s, Cuban music was omnipresent in the U.S. And the uh, African-American swing feel and the Afro-Cuban straight eights feel were mixing up and hybridizing in all kind of ways, a process that had been going on all along, but uh, which really got um, a, a catalyst in 1931 with the hit recording of El Manicero, the peanut vendor, and then a second major jolt in uh, the late 40s with uh, the work of Chano Poso with Dizzy Gillespie, which introduced the the tumbadora or conga drum uh, and a different sense of how to build a song. Uh, and uh, Chano, uh, Chano's music drove Dizzy's uh, people nuts because it didn't seem to go anywhere. It just looped. Uh, and this is, of course, now this is so basic to our pop music that we take it for granted. But African-American music did not do that. African-American music was based on chord progressions. It might be the three chord progression of the blues. But as you said, that's dealt out over 12 bars. You know, you have four bars of G, two bars of C, two bars of G, D, C, etc. Uh, but in, uh, you know, in any number of pop records in the certainly by the 60s you get these one four five four over and over and over you can name literally hundreds of records that do that and that all comes in from cuba and it gives the music this incredible power to be played over and over again i can remember yeah. a famous club in Austin that was shut down. And I believe uh, Liberty Lunch was shut down around the turn of the millennium. And and they had a 24-hour marathon of uh, Gloria by Van Morrison and them, which is one of these Mm -hmm. songs that has this little three-chord endless loop sequence. Mm -hmm. And you could do it. You could listen to idiots playing bad versions of Gloria. And they were great musicians and my friends and I'm not, you know, but it was essentially drunk idiots playing this, you know, very simple pattern for 24 hours. And it... And I could be wrong, it might have been 12 or whatever, but it's, it was a long, long marathon of Gloria. But you could do it. You could play that same tune over oh, yeah. and well, over. When I, was, when I was in a garage band, you know, back in the mid-60s, and of course we played Louie Louie, it was great because you, as long as people wanted to dance, you could just keep playing it. If you played a uh, another kind, you know, a, a regular pop song, you would sing the two verses, the bridge, and the third verse, and then you would have to start repeating verses and you would just go over and over. But in the Cuban song form, there's 
what I call the pivot. You sing the song proper up front, and then you hit the montuno. Then you hit the part where you just hit a loop, and the, there's, a, there's a rhythmic chorus that repeats and gets hotter and hotter while the lead singer improvises over it. It builds, and then you, at some point, you bring it down or you move it to a, a horn section, which plays what's called a mambo. You come back, you do this some more, and you can keep going back and forth like that, building it as long as the dancers want to keep going, and the dancers understand this format. So they also... Uh, contribute energy to the music if this we're talking about a music that's an open circuit between a live band and live dancers not dancers uh locked into a mechanical click um so this kind of uh form allows for a a, a kind of a, an unfolding and even improvisation in real time that uh Otherwise, you can't get to. And these three chord rock songs kind of harness a little of that energy. You'll notice that many, uh, many songs at the end hit this power vamp. They ride out on this one vamp that goes over and over. Um, and indeed, that's what happens in uh, Hit the Road Jack that you were playing er earlier. They just take this, this, these four chords and just repeat them over and over. Uh, and you can, you know, with that, you can build all kinds of structures that it's harder to do with a song form. Yeah, and that's why almost every pop song on the radio today is a four chord loop of one kind or another that works great in the 30 second TikTok snippet or stretch it out as far as, say, two minutes and 15 seconds uh, for the full, you know, Billie Eilish video or whatever on YouTube. If, if you yeah, songs have lost uh, songs have lost bridges entirely. They don't bother with them anymore. Yeah, and, no time and for a you know, Ted Joy is always talking about trance and the power of trance in music, and says that you know you need at least ten minutes of the same song going to to achieve that trance state. And to me, that explained kind of why. I related more to the Velvet Underground when they stretched out Sister A for 17 minutes with Mo Tucker seemingly mm -hmm. moronically playing the same beat. It meant so much more to me than, say, Keith Moon or Tony Williams or some kind of rock or, you know, Ginger Baker or whatever, who's varying what they're doing and trying to tell a story. If they just locked onto that mindless beat, then you could go places with it. Trance-wise, and in the book, you introduced us to a lot about African culture and African history, which I knew a little bit about, but you take it back, there is a primordial African music, and I'm talking about the San and the Pygmies. Um, mm -hmm. What's unique about the music of these people, and why do we think it's some of the oldest music in Sub-Saharan Africa? Ooh, now that's a deep question. The it's you're, you're admittedly in speculative territory here. Uh, because it's hard to prove things that go back like this. And the American language, uh, Modern Language Association, I think, has twice prohibited papers speculating on the origin of human language. But um, the languages of the, uh, of, of the people called the, the Baka or the people called Pygmies um, or of the uh, Oisan uh, go, uh, go back to a time when um, people would, well, for example, in the case of the San people, um, they break up into groups and uh, they have, when they hunt, and they communicate by clicks. Clicks are part of the language. And this is a percussive moment in a language. I argue, uh, without admittedly uh, more than circumstantial evidence, um, 
because you you can't uh, solve these issues with archaeology, that clicks go back to a time when uh, people communicated percussively. Um, And even not people, Uh, chimpanzees, when they uh, hunt, our closest uh, relative uh, in the animal kingdom, uh, break up into groups uh, and communicate by drumming on buttress logs. So there, I'm, my point here is that uh, language, the talking drum, drums talk, right? We know this about African drumming. Uh, but the question is, was it perhaps not uh, that we learned to talk in some measure from our drums rather than did our drums learn to talk by copying our language? And let's hear a little bit of pygmy music. And this example kind of gets to the heart of why pygmy we can't music, I should, untangle I should, I should, this stuff. I should jump in and say, pygmy, I was talking about the Thon people here. Pygmy music is something else, but uh, this, is a, uh, this is a communal music. This is a music that is uh, sung in groups. The pygmies have this fantastic uh, method of singing where they, each one, uh, each person sings a note and they do what is called hocketing, making composite melodies. The idea of this kind of music is that since everyone is participating, everyone can play a part and uh, everything is everything is part of the whole. There, there's not a separation between uh, performers and listeners as we are used to thinking of it. Or even between leaders and followers as, as we hear in other African right. music. But let's go ahead That's and hear right. our sample sample first. And, and, and this is Clementine, the American song, or maybe it's English, I don't know, but it's, it's a song, a tune I remembered. But this is a version recorded by the anthropologist Colm M. Turnbull with the pygmies of the Aichuri rainforest in the late 1950s. And that was Clementine, I'm even mispronouncing English here, uh, from the Pygmies of the Turi Rainforest recordings captured by the anthropologist Colin M. Turnbull in the late 1950s. And it's amazing how they can take a familiar melody and make it sound so different and alien and refreshing. And the bit about no call and response in Pygmy music really blew me away because call and response is one of the things, you know, in our series we've been doing on here, the Holy Roll series uh, with Garrett Cash, we've been learning about call and response and how fundamental it is to the African-American culture here in North America. But it's not part of pygmy culture, but it's very much part of Cuban culture. Tell us about the Bantu people and the Yoruba people and the people who introduced these notions of hierarchy. Um, you call them cultures of iron in the book. Yeah, the... Uh... Iron seems to have come to Africa from the north and worked its way down. But the fact is that uh, Africans had the power technology of iron. Uh, And 
just as in Norway there's a blacksmith god, uh, in Congo there's a blacksmith god. Uh, his name is Sarabanda, as in Saraband. Um, in um, in uh, Yoruba land, um, in present-day Nigeria, he's Ogun. Um, these the Bantu migration, one of the great migrations of human history, but seems to have happened slowly and gradually over about five thousand years. Again, not really confirmable by archaeology, but uh, first postulated by linguistic forensics, and then. Um, confirmed by uh, DNA testing, um, this, a, the people moved from the conjectured Bantu homeland of northeastern Cameroon down, down a little bit, moving a little farther every generation as uh, lands became exhausted, uh, denuded of uh, vegetation, which was needed to uh, stoke the fires to smelt iron. Uh, it slowly, the, this mass, this Bantu language group moved down across a massive area of Central and Southern Africa. And uh, when we think of Bantu today, perhaps the first thing we think of is Congo. Um, but uh, Bantu, the Bantu languages went all the way down into you know, present-day Zimbabwe, uh, etc. The um, in Nigeria now, as I mentioned earlier, Congo was uh, Catholicized in 1491 when the Portuguese, when well, actually when Italian Capuchin missionaries arrived after the, following the Portuguese contact with Congo in 1483. But meanwhile, up in um, what sometimes called Lower Guinea, that is uh, present-day Nigeria, Benin, Cameroon. Um, there was neither Catholicization or Islamization, and the traditional religions were practiced uh, without um, without a without a uh, syncretism. The Niger- Yoruba religion probably was syncretized with uh, Islam to some degree, but and but they they were basically worshiping ancestral deities and this now that i'm a long way from a uh, call and response here but there's this massive uh call and response notion that goes really all across africa um and we the pig the fact that pygmies don't have it uh, relates to their even older status the pygmies were largely colonized or uh, dominated by the Bantu. And uh, the two musics, uh, to some degree, melded. That is to say, the Bantu took on aspects of pygmy music, as conquerors have done from the conquered uh, forever. And yeah, you said a music- line in the book I have to quote. If, uh, sorry to interrupt, but I have to quote this one line in the book because you put it so perfectly. You said, presumably the Bantu learned music from their pygmy vassals in the same way masters have learned music from slaves everywhere. And any yeah. North American with any inkling of our heritage, that should really hit you. Like the same process that we've engaged in happened in Africa between the Bantu and the pygmy way back. Um, way back. And- when. And I make a lot of, and I make a lot about the differences between African American and Afro Cuban music because I think it's important to understand them. But you can also look at it from the opposite perspective. What do they have in common? And they have a lot in common. Um, as uh, 
you know, as Chano and Dizzy uh, pointed out, you know, uh, Dizzy, Dizzy doesn't speak Spanish. I don't speak English, but we speak African. Uh, one of the things is call and response. So basic, so fundamental and so much a part of African music all throughout the, the Western Hemisphere. Yeah, and it's interesting that the pygmies seem to have contributed this idea of repeating rhythmic cell um, that, you know, plays a simple pattern over and over again. But the Bantu then bring this call and response and hierarchical um, aspect to it that then becomes so important in Cuba as well. And let's go ahead. And the music that were brought to the Americas were in no sense primitive. I just want to say this right now. Oh, yeah. Know that I don't think your listeners probably think they were, but uh, there has always been this notion out there that uh, the music from Africa was something very primordial. It was a very, very complex music, uh, highly, um, what's the word I want? In Well, the in cuba especially where we can see it to this day the religious beliefs the culture of the music was con- uh, of the of the people was contained in the music the music kept the religion alive the religion kept the music alive and anyone who's been to a ceremony in cuba today and where the african religions are practiced all across the island knows what i'm talking about um, course it's not just in cuba you find this practice going on all over the hemisphere but in cuba it's uh, been preserved adapted and transformed to uh, an astonishing degree absolutely and let me play our next um song snippet and this is kind of an unusual one i found on youtube that uh isn't particularly well documented um so i, I don't know exactly what it is but it's a it's it's the first sound is a tribal African recording featuring call and response. And then it segues into Little Richard doing some call and response with his audience. So this is a classic example of what Dizzy and Chavo were talking about with speaking African. Call and response. Well, all right, everybody. Yeah. I just got back. Yeah. From my tour over in England. Yeah. Everybody's talking about the rock and crave over in England. Yeah. It's a crave. Yeah. Everybody love it. Yeah. I just finished my tour in Germany. Yeah. I just left Italy. Yeah. I went on down in Sweden. Yeah. I stopped over in Belgium. Yeah. And I went on down in France. Yeah. I went over in Australia. Yeah. Everybody's shaking. Yeah. And that was little Richard doing a live version of a whole lot of shaking going on preceded by uh, some uh, African tribes people doing call and response uh, in, in their tribal music. And now I want to ask you, what was different about Spain and Cuba's model of slavery? How We've talked about this a little bit with the New Orleans episode. How was it that these infusions, I mean, Spain started their empire so much earlier, why was it that Cuba was kind of late to mass importation of enslaved peoples? And why did it keep going on so long? And what impact did that have on the music? Well, that's a lot of questions right there. But, um, Spain, but Cedar, the, Catholic, the Catholic world had a different way of dealing with African religions than the Protestant world did. The Protestant world uh, simply attempted to stamp it out and prohibit it, confiscate the drums, uh, prohibit the uh, 
practice of the religions. So that in um, in Virginia, what uh, in people practiced they practiced the old hoodoo religion really, and I actually think that it was the uh, First Amendment that uh, stimulated the great growth of the black church in America because um, the uh, with the guarantee of religious freedom, uh, black people could form their own churches um, in a way that they had not really been able to do um, on the cotton plantations um, during slavery days. Um, this, though, was Protestantism, because the African religions had been taken away the uh, and prohibited. In Cuba, in um, I mean, that's that's too simple an account, but it's uh, it's fundamentally true in uh, in in Cuba and in the rest of the Catholic hemisphere. Uh, the practice was different specifically in Cuba. They had what were called cabildos de nación, which were uh, organizations, uh, national organizations where people could affiliate with um, people from a certain part of Congo or a certain part of Dalmay or wherever. Uh, there were, you know, a certain part of uh, Calabar. Um, and behind the closed doors of the Cabildos, the religions continued to be practiced. They actually only started to be criminalized really after independence as a U.S. neo-colony when uh, in the early 20th century uh, the drums began to be confiscated. Uh, But the point is that the religions and their drum lore that were brought from Africa could be could continue to live, be studied, remembered, and transmitted behind the closed doors of the cabildos by recent arrivals, um, in in some cases from Africa. Bear in mind that um, you asked about why uh, Cuba was so late in its peak of slaving. there were slaves in Cuba from uh, the beginning. There were African slaves in Cuba from the beginning, as well as free black people. But it wasn't uh, really until uh, after the British took Havana briefly in 1762 and uh, stepped up Cuba's sugar industry and bourbon Spain started to give the planters of Cuba more freedom to import Africans that uh, there started to be a a larger traffic as Cuba's sleepy sugar industry started to ramp up. And with the Haitian Revolution taking out one of the world's two major sugar suppliers, along with Jamaica, there was a massive uh, hole in the market for Cuba to fill. And the first three decades of the 19th century were bonanza years for Cuban sugar planters, and they imported vast numbers of captive Africans. And after 1850, when the British uh, Navy stopped the slave trade to Brazil from Africa, Cuba was the last nation, last place in the world uh, still importing captive Africans, which they did often through American flagged vessels, which the British would not stop. and the uh, last known uh, slave ships were in the 1860s. It really finally stopped with the U.S. Civil War. But what this means is that when Mongo Santa Maria was born in uh, 1920 
in um, in Havana, the elders in his barrio were from Africa. This was uh, this was a much more recent cultural infusion. Uh, Africans brought culture into Cuba from the early 16th from the 16th century into uh, into the the uh, 1860s, and uh, so that with the with the result that you can find people in Cuba today. Well, I knew a man who died in his. Uh, late 80s, early 90s, a few years ago, whose father had been brought from Africa as a child in the 1860s. So you, the, the connections are still that close. And I, I want to get to one last thing, and I should have gotten this sooner, because there were indigenous people in Cuba when the Spanish arrived, the Tainos, if I'm pronouncing it right. The Tainos, yeah. If I'm, and, and that, um, you know, they're essentially just, you know, murdered and genocided and diseased uh, to the the point they don't exist. But you do speculate early on about a musical rite they had called an areito? The areito. Um, Areito. And and do you think that that the the Tainos, is there any echo of their traditions in the the Afro-Cuban music we hear today? There is. The lore says that there is. And I should point out that the Taino were, it's the Taino were eliminated as a separate cultural force, and uh, it's but it's not entirely correct to say that they were uh, completely exterminated uh, because they there are plenty of Taino descended people in Cuba today. What happened, of course, was that Spanish. Uh, who by and large were men, uh, did not bring uh, so many uh, Spanish women and uh, took, uh, took uh, indigenous women as uh, concubines and wives. And uh, so the resultant children were considered to be um, Spanish uh, or Creole, but uh, were, of course, were actually, in terms of DNA, they were carrying uh, tiny, you can see Taino facial features commonly in Cubans today. And there are communities, especially in the East, uh, that, are, that are very heavily Taino, uh, certainly in phenotype. Uh, there's a saying in Eastern Cuba, and it, I'm not going to comment on its uh, accuracy, uh, except to say that maybe uh, that the son brings together Spanish, African, and indigenous in the uh, form of the the African drum, the Spanish stringed instrument, and the maraca. Uh, now, I would say that there are, of course, maracas in Africa as well, and of course the Tainos had. Uh, drums as well uh but there's you know there's something back there uh but we can't really pick it out as a strong separate cultural element in the way that we can detect the massive presence of africa in uh explicit detail and great variety yeah because we can go uh to west africa and hear the music that's there and and hear hear the amazing connections, um, and it's it's obviously impossible to do that since we obliterate the Taino culture. But I'm so glad to hear that the mestizo, you know, genes survive uh, through the the process of blending. And this blending 
is, you know, the human evolutionary process. And this has resulted in this incredible music, the Afro-Cuban music, which is incredible in its own right. But we're going to talk and you're going to come back in a couple of weeks and we're going to talk more about uh, the details of the different, uh, different African tribes and what they brought. And this whole African science, I mean, to me, I see this African science of rhythm that was developed in sub-Saharan Africa, it's easily as complicated as what Bach was doing with the well-tempered clavier uh, in, in, you know, Enlightenment um, Europe. And these two, you know, cultures collided with the dominant culture having no respect or regard or understanding for the complexity of the others. And that's one of the reasons that, you know, music copyright only covers melody, chords, and lyrics, and rhythm is just left out completely but we'll get to that next time. My guest has been Ned Sublet. The book is Cuba and its music from the first drums to the mambo. Hopefully we covered the first drums and next time we'll get closer and closer to the mambo. Thanks so much for coming back, Ned. Well, thank you. It's been great. Follow the Letter Roll podcast on Twitter at Letter Rollcast and check out our website at letterrollpodcast.com. Thursday, Nate welcomes back Tony Fletcher to discuss his book, All Hopped Up and Ready to Go, Music from the Streets of New York, 1927 to 1977. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.